Welcome to the Stratcom podcast. I'm your host, Kubra Akkoç, a journalist at TRT World. Today, we are going to talk about cybersecurity, privacy, and data protection. Joining me now is Professor Ioka Boyton, who is a cybersecurity professor at the Montfort University in the United Kingdom. Professor, thanks for joining us. Hello. So, I want to start with very basics of the cybersecurity. I want to ask you first of all, what are the general motives behind cyber attacks? Anything and everything. Most of it is is uh, for profit. So most cyber attacks are to do with people wanting to scam people through identity theft, take over their bank accounts. So that sort of thing. Financial financial benefit is the is the most obvious one. Uh, if you look at the cyber attacks. At a corporate scale, then things like ransomware attacks are also looking to uh, get money through extortion. I want to ask you how vulnerable are governments and companies to cyber attacks? That rather varies. Uh, mm-hmm. In my sector, they will say that most companies are vulnerable to cyber attacks from a powerful enough and motivated enough adversary like a state-based uh, attacker. Everybody is vulnerable to some extent because a lot of the software that we work with day to day turns out to have yet every day, every time, yet another uh, security hole which people can exploit. And there are ways in which people can increase their own risk of being more vulnerable. I see. Right. So, Professor, with the pandemic, digitization got to a new level. Open source information, all of our personal data like all of our information is digitized and everywhere on the internet so what impact does this have on the cybersecurity the impact of personal information being available on the internet for cybersecurity is mainly uh, things to do with social engineering that's mm-hmm. to say ways in which um, external information about somebody can be used to create an attack so mm-hmm. for example if you know what my wife's name is then uh, you could send me an email, an unexpected email at an odd time saying, uh, we've got, uh, we, we've, you, your, your wife so has had an accident mm-hmm. or your wife so-and-so has had an inheritance and you need to click immediately on this link uh, in order to, uh, to help us out. And mm-hmm. all that sort of detail about people's personal life makes that sort of attacks more credible and people more likely to fall for them. So that's one way in which having personal information out there makes a difference. Some people use personal information in passwords or in the security questions, like what's your, your mother's maiden name and things like that. There are quizzes on Facebook which uh, invite people to answer that sort of questions, which um, tend to be a little bit, well, I tend to be a little bit suspicious of for exactly that reason. So, Professor, like... Individually, this is an individual question. So I voluntarily put a lot of information on social media, on the internet. But regarding cybersecurity, should I be afraid while doing that? Or should I be thinking about some countermeasures, like, like or how to protect my information all the time when I'm sharing picture? Like, what if, if someone steals it, uses it for something? Or what if someone steals my location for some other purposes. Will this get back, get back to us? So a lot of people are voluntarily putting a lot of information on the internet. And I really want to know how will it, or will it get back to us? It's, it depends. If you're in a very important job, 
-hmm. then uh, you, you need to think about the motivation of attackers, right? Mm -hmm. So uh, if, if you're in a very important job, then there's probably a lot to gain from an attacker uh, taking over your account or, or things like that, mm -hmm. which means that, that you need to be extra careful with information. It makes sense to use security visibility settings on social media and places like that, making a, a conscious choice on um, who you share the information and who, uh, with and who you don't share the information with. Most lots of apps and, 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 and other, other websites have ways of controlling what information goes where, and that, that allows you to, to, um, to protect it a little bit. But um, should you be wary of putting photos out there? Should you be wary of sh sharing your location in general? There is a balance here between doing the right things and protecting yourself and taking measured risks, right? So right. for somebody who's, who's been in the press for, for over 10 years saying of things that Facebook does are ridiculous and an infringement of, of privacy and rights, uh, you would expect me not to have a, a personal Facebook account, possibly. But on the other hand, I also live in a different country from a lot of my family yes. and uh, a, lot, a lot of my friends from the, the first half of my life. So uh, something like Facebook is a nice way for me to share some, some of my life with, with them and actually do, right? It's a matter of balance and measured taking of risks, not unnecessarily sharing information when there's no real benefit for you for sharing it, but there is a real risk with it. Right. I see, Mr. Burton. So among your publications, one of them is called Challenges in Assessing Privacy Impact, Tales from the Front Lines. So can you please give us a little bit of an insight about this piece? What's, what do you and your co-workers here talking about exactly? Sure. So in data protection law in Europe, one of the things that is mandatory there is whenever you do something with personal data that looks like it might have a serious impact because it's either processing a lot of information or it is about taking fairly sensitive personal information from people like medical information or uh, facial recognition or information about their religion, for example, it also has special protection. If you, if you end up processing that sort of information on a large scale, then uh, what the, the law requires for you to do is, um, is an impact assessment, an impact assessment into... Uh, Okay, so you're trying to achieve something good here with this processing, but what are the risks in terms mm -hmm. of cybersecurity, in terms of privacy, and what, what are the risks in all dimensions going from plain cybersecurity risks, like the things that we've just talked about, to um, human rights-related risks? Does it mean that that's, uh, this facial recognition system means that you can no longer go, go to football matches because your face is known and it looks like somebody who is banned from football matches even that if that's not you that sort of that sort of risks need to be considered and that's impact assessment data protection impact assessment or privacy impact assessment and what we've done in this research is we were a couple of academics who wanted to know how to do this properly and how to measure impacts properly so how bad is the impact on privacy of something and we don't know how to do that let's ask the professionals so we actually invited uh, about 20 uh, data protection professionals, consultants, data protection officers, people doing that day to day, day in, day out for their work. Uh, and we asked them questions about how they do that. And this, this uh, paper uh, and ongoing research from that tells how, um, how difficult it actually is. 
because um, a lot of impact assessment in, in business is just in terms of money, but a lot of lot of data protection impact assessments, a lot of the possible damage that you might get there is very hard to express in money. So uh, yeah, you could think it's it's a sort of you could translate it into money uh, in the sense of this is the maximum fine that people could get, or this is the maximum compensation that a court might force them to pay, but it's still still unsatisfactory. So a common a common example is, for example, if is when people uh, send out emails to lots of others and they use uh, CC instead of BCC, so everybody sees everybody else's email address. And we've had a couple of incidents oh, in different countries where people have done that to emails to support groups of, on sensitive issues. For example, uh, there was one with the support group of HIV positive people. How, how do you um, express the measure the damage of, of something of leaking the email addresses of the, the, the fact that 20 people are HIV positive to, to, to 20 other people? It's very hard to put that into money. So that's some of the challenges in there. We don't know how to measure the damage. And about a part of the challenges for a lot of privacy risks, we don't know how high the likelihood is. So, for example, something that happens in hospitals a lot, but happens in hospitals on a regular basis, is that a member of staff knows that a celebrity is in the hospital and uh, accidentally or not accidentally checks the medical data of that celebrity who happens to be in a hospital. Well, how likely is it that um, this hospital has somebody who is sufficiently obsessed with this celebrity who happens to turn up in this hospital at that point and also gets away with uh, bypassing the security and uh, in checking their, their personal uh, medical data? Right? It's a serious, serious kind of risk, but you, yeah. it's impossible to quantify how likely it is to happen. Right. Professor, great examples, actually, like when, when it comes to the CC and BCC thing. Maybe most of the people, you know, even not aware of the difference, right? So it's a really good example. Thanks for that. So lastly, Professor, I want to ask you about something you said before, if I'm not mistaken. Social media doesn't need new regulation to make the internet safer. GDPR, which is the general data protection regulation, can do the job, right? Yeah, I wrote a piece suggesting that when the first laws about social media regulation came into place, I think this was ever so slightly provocative, but I, I think a lot of the actual damage of social media, if you look at individual people, is directly related to the profiling. Yeah. So it's directly related to once you've, you've start shown some interest in a particular topic, you get drawn into a rabbit hole, you get profiled as somebody who has interest in a particular area, and that's for advertising well maybe that's justifiable but when it gets to psychological characteristics personal interests it gets a lot more dubious so we've had an ongoing story in the us of uh, people being profiled as uh, having interest in the culture of particular races which was of course a proxy for race and that then being used uh, in targeting of particular types of advertising for example housing now in the US, it's not it's not allowed to discriminate by race when you advertise housing, but uh, through this backdoor they were able to do it. Mm -hmm. And the most so the profiling is the problem there, right? Yeah. Or it's part part of the problem. And uh, similarly, when you think of people being fed uh, endless information about, well, for example, pro anorexia um, websites, if if people get profiled as this person is a potential anorexia victim. 
And we're going to feed, because of that, the, the machine just feeds them more amount. That's actively harmful. And the profiling of people for that is irresponsible. And uh, if an organization like Facebook took their responsibilities on the GDPR seriously, then they would have done a data protection impact assessment, which would have told them that um, profiling people for that sort of sensitive stuff and then targeting them is uh, dangerous and should not be done. Right. For... But just GDPR for is for only the EU and European zone countries, right? Yeah, but but uh, on the other hand, the GDPR is based on general principles that have been agreed on a, on a wider scale. The OECD principles, for example, mm, and yeah. there are more and more countries across the world which take on similar sort of legislation. And even the UK, where I am, which has left the European Union, as you probably yeah. know, uh, has has retained something that looks like the GDPR. It's even called the UK GDPR. And for being allowed data traffic between the country and the European Union, the country needs to have data protection in place that's roughly comparable. Yeah. Right. So South Korea has made a deal with the EU just last week to say, yes, uh, data protection in South Korea is good enough, which mm-hmm. means that personal data can be transferred effectively and uh, processed effectively between uh, South Korea and the EU. And of course, mm-hmm. a lot of modern business is based on processing of data, processing of personal data of one kind or another. So uh, I, I have, yeah, uh, the, the, the GDPR only works in the EU. But it has an influence that stretches outside there because everybody wants to do business with the EU. Yeah, I see. So it's a functioning mechanism to make the internet safer. Yeah. Professor Boyton, pleasure to have you on the Stratcom podcast. Thank you for your time. Thank you very much, Kubran.